What is up, everyone? My name is Sterling Shea. Thank you for listening to Arts District, the podcast. Today, I am joined by Ryan Matthew Smith. I'm not sure if he needs an introduction, but he is an artist here in our DFW community. He has an incredible story to tell, and I really think you're going to love it. So let's just get started. Here's Ryan. So how are you? I am good. I'm hopeful. I'm uh, excited. I'm ready to get back to work. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, me too. I feel that. Well, I'm really excited to talk to you today, Ryan. Thank you so much for jumping on with me. Can you start by walking us through your career and like how you got to where you are today? It's a complicated question. Loaded. loaded. (laughs) Take all the time you need. Well, my name is Ryan Matthew Smith, and I'm an artist. I am a native of Oak Cliff. I graduated from Bishop Lynch here in Dallas, Texas, and an early mentor of mine, I've been involved in the arts for a very long time, but an early mentor of mine uh, told me, gave me the best piece of advice. It was, if you want to work in the arts, and I started out as a performer, um, that's how I, how I came to, into the arts as a performer. But if you find something that you're good at doing backstage, learn that craft and do it so that you have, you will always have a job as a performer. Yeah. So you're not an actor that waits tables or, you know, you will always find work within the industry. Yeah. And so I I took that to heart. And um, after I graduated high school, I went immediately to New York City and uh, I went there to learn the trade of hair and makeup. And uh, while I was there, I also did a lot of workshops for theater and film. And it was just a constant uh, voyage of education while I was uh, in New York City. And it was really the best piece of advice was was learning some skills other than just being able to be on the stage or be on camera. Learning the craft from all different angles was something that has served me to this day. So I was in New York City. I was learning and teaching and creating and doing all sorts of stuff. I mean, anything that anybody would want you to do, I just showed up for. I was like, hi, I can do that. Mm -hmm. I'm here for it. I went to New York with like 400 bucks in my pocket. And um, I stayed at the Hotel Riverview. The time was like the dilapidated hotel where you could check in for like a week at a time. And then you had to check out for 24 hours before you could check back in. It was in the meatpacking district. It was the original building where they took the survivors of the Titanic. It's a really oh cool God. building, but it was, yeah, it was pretty sketchy <laughs> at the time. Anyways, there I got to work on original costuming for Hedwig and the Angry Inch. Wow. The basement space of that uh, hotel where I was living is where they produced the uh, first theatrical version of that show. Okay. So it was, it's really, uh, it was really cool sort of being in uh, the environment where Art was happening on all levels, but mainly in the streets and in the gutters. And uh, it was so it was a time of uh, great creativity. Uh, I think when I hit the the scene in New York, mm-hmm. it was really it was really cool to be a part of all that. Like there was a squeeze box in New York as well, which was like this punk rock drag club, and it was awesome just to be a part of the energy of the city at that time. Like literal underground theater, it sounds like. Oh yeah, absolutely. Which for me, 
you know, my, a lot of my work to this day is driven by that, that raw passion of just creating something, guerrilla theater, if you will, just make it happen. And, you, and I find that creativity comes to you because you have to figure out how do I make a spectacle out of nothing. Yeah. And uh, so it was, it was an exciting time to be there. Um, but like all great art movements, they end. And then you have to move on to the next gig because you're a gig worker. So I found myself back in Dallas after I left New York. And I got cast in a show. It was a Shakespeare show. Uh, it, was, uh, it, did, it was a production company called Bucket Productions. And they did Shakespeare on the Lake at the Bathhouse Cultural Center. And I got cast as a witch in Macbeth. The costumer in that production was also, at the time, a resident costumer at Theater 3. And uh, because I knew hair and makeup, she had asked me if I would help do hair and makeup on that production. And we enjoyed working with each other. So she invited me to go to Theater 3 and work on a production there. And when I walked in the doors at Theater 3, it just immediately felt like I was home. I had found my people. Mm-hmm. And I met Terry Dobson and Jack Alder. And they immediately made room for me at their table. They literally created a job for me at Theater 3 as their resident hair and makeup designer. And that's sort of how I got my foot in the door in DFW. We were producing seven main stage shows upstairs in the basement space at Theater 2. We were running I Love You, Perfect, Now Change for like 10 years. And, you know, every six weeks, they were bringing in a new host of actors and performers and directors and designers. So very quickly within like one season, I had met and worked with the majority of DFW artists. Wow. And through that, I then started working at the Dallas Theater Center as a dresser and a hair and makeup artist and was doing haircuts and wig building for the Dallas Theater Center. And one thing led to another. You know, you started working everywhere. Everyone started knowing your name and you started building a reputation for yourself. And again, like all great things in art, they always come to an end. And then Dallas had gone through a budget cut and people in the arts that had jobs were losing jobs. and Mine was one of the first ones to get cut, as, you know, as we learned in the uh, this recent pandemic, that arts are basically the first thing that go. Yeah. Because we're considered a luxury as opposed to a necessity. And uh, as a gig worker, you're looking for the, um, you know, for the next thing, what we're going to do. So the economy was sort of crashing. And at that time, I learned that I was losing my eyesight. I was having a health problem and uh, I had a degenerative eye disease and I had severe head trauma um, when I was four days old. Wow. I was dropped on my head and I had my skull had fractured and my brains had to be pushed back into my head. And then subsequently, when I was a teenager, I had some bad car accidents and some more head trauma. And that on top of the fact that I had was growing dense cataracts over both eyes. I was losing my vision uh, very quickly. That sort of lit a fuel under me and sort of uh, perpetuated a lot of my drive to do things and see things and experience things before I could I could no longer see them. Mm. That sort of took me on an Alaskan adventure. Really? <laughs> so, yeah, so I left Dallas and I literally drove with a, a best friend of mine to Alaska. And it took us seven days driving about 13 hours a day. 
And I was going to the University of Anchorage to uh, teach kids, um, babies. They were like ages uh, three to 18 in a, in a children's program that was sanctioned through the university. Um, I went there to uh, design costumes and to teach and direct. And I got to have an Alaskan adventure. So that sort of took me out of Dallas. Mm-hmm. And then when I left there, I went to LA after that. Um, I drove down to LA and I, um, I started working as a production designer and a costume designer uh, in film. And I kind of fell into that uh, because when I landed there in film, as you might know, like everything is very, you do one job and that's all you do. Mm. And when I got to LA because of training and my background in theater, the advice that, oh, well, this one artist can do so many jobs. And, and instead of hiring a crew of 10, I can hire one of him. That's sort of what, how I got my, my start in film uh, was sort of making myself a, a commodity. Mm. So during that period, I was losing, I was gradually losing my eyesight. So I lost all vision in my left eye completely. And um, I was quickly losing my right eye. And I didn't tell anyone that I was going through this. It was something that I sort of uh, suffered silently because I didn't want to be a liability on set to anyone. Yeah. But I didn't want to, I, I didn't want to give up the art, so to speak. Because at that point, it was really all of my identity at that point was built into being an artist and who I was as, as an artist. So I, I remember like when I was on set for movies, I would just like pick my feet up really high so that I wouldn't trip on any wires or anything. Right. Um, as I was losing the vision, I had to sort of uh, reteach myself distance and color through texture. It was a really interesting um, process. That was the first thing I thought is it designing is such a visual medium. So like, how were you adjusting to that coming on? It hit me that I was basically having to redefine who I was as a person because as an artist, we are what we create. We are, you know, what do we do with our hands is so important. It was through this that I sort of learned and came to the realization that eyesight had very little to do with vision as an artist. It's where I learned that I I could do so much more than I was uh, allowed to do. It's when I started writing. It's when I started directing. It's when I started producing. It's when I started thinking, if I'm an artist and I don't have my eyes, what do I do to stay a vital part of this business? Those things I could do without having eyes, without having eyesight. So that's how I learned how to push myself in those directions and and study business and and learn the art of producing and your own work and and creating your own work and um, being a driving force behind who you are and what you do and holding yourself accountable for for creating something unique because you are who you are yeah <laughs> and you have to survive I mean it's the it's yes the yes workers you have to keep working you have to keep uh, striving and promoting and moving on to what's next. When my eyes completely went, I came back to Dallas and uh, I got, it was like a two, it was a, the whole thing was like a four-year process. At the time, there was something called the Division of the Blind here in Dallas and it no longer exists. But at the time, if uh, you could prove that you were number one blind and two could be rehabilitated into the workforce, that this uh, division would pay for 
your surgeries and your doctor's appointments and your medications. And the first year I moved back to Dallas, I was denied. And then I had to reapply. And basically, you know, healthcare in America, you have to get worse before you can get help. So I literally had to go com- be considered completely blind until I could receive any financial help. And luckily, you know, after the end of the four years, I was approved and now I can see. Wow. I yeah, I had a transplant in both eyes and then I had cataract surgery to remove cataracts that had grown in that were about the size of two white jelly beans uh, on both my eyes. And then I started working, just got right back to work. In fact, at the time, <laughs> at the time, I had two shows that I had designed here in Dallas that were running. I remember the nurse had taken the bandage. They did one eye at a time. So when the nurse had taken the bandage off of one of my eyes, his scrubs erupted into this color green that I had never seen before. No way. It was like life in cartoon motion. I was like, wow. is this, this is what the world has been seeing? Like I was so excited and angry at the same time because like, I cannot believe that I've never seen this green before. Yeah. It was wild. And I had two shows that I had designed that were running. I went to go see both of them, just kind of see what my work looked like with this new thing. And, and they looked good. <laughs> <laughs> that is funny. Yeah, it's pretty funny. <laughs> wow, what a story. What a journey. Yeah, it's been a journey. It's not done. I'm excited for... Um, I'm, all, I'm just excited. Yeah. You know, everything, is, uh, everything in my life, everything around me... Eh, Everything that connects us is we're all going through it. I think that's something that sort of struck me when we shut down is that you you get sometimes bogged down in thinking about your place in this world and what you contribute and, and sometimes what you lack. And I think what I learned is that we're all in that same boat, mm-hmm. everyone. And that's not something that I, maybe it's something I took for granted or didn't realize prior to the shutdown is that we're all so vulnerable and therefore so connected. Yes. We're all sort of, we're so similar. We're more alike than we are unlike. So it's, Yeah, you know. and I, what you said at the beginning with, you know, do the theater and then do something that you're good at that the theater needs, like something backstage. And for me, that was always like marketing and membership. And in college, I had a job where I worked with alumni and donors. And I was like, great, this is going to directly translate. No biggie. And I dabbled in like live events a lot and being an event coordinator. And then the pandemic happened and both of those things were taken away. And I was like, well, now I have nothing. What do I do? Yeah. So we're all kind of in this same boat of redefining how do we keep moving and well okay so how long ago was this surgery it's been 10 years now wow yeah i've been back in i've been back in dallas 10 years okay and you said you're from oak cliff oak cliff born and raised and proud of it do you love it (laughs) i do when i moved back here um i purchased the house um that i'm currently living in and i did this because no matter what was going on in my life, personally, or in the industry, work-wise or world-wise, it's so important to have a place, a home, and you know, some place that you know that you can lie your head, and that is your sanctuary. Mm-hmm. And that is what this home was for me. And purchasing it 
in the neighborhood that I grew up in um, was very important and just kind of gave me my gave me a place to ground who I am and, and where I'm going. It's definitely been a sanctuary for myself and for I mean I've had so many artists live with me in and out of my doors, been a, a safe place for them as well to kind of figure out what their next step is. So it really has been sort of a great investment and I'm I'm very happy that I did it in the neighborhood that I grew up in. Yeah. There's a lot of heart in this area. Yeah, that's cool. We've been in Dallas a year now and I think we just got here and hit the ground running and kept our heads down. And now I'm like, okay, we need to be more mindful about exploring the different neighborhoods and getting out and seeing all the very like different parts of Dallas that exist. Yeah, DFW is great. I, I love it. I've, you know, I've lived all, all over on both coasts and traveled the world. And Dallas always feels like going home, which is a, a nice place to be. Yeah. So when you moved to LA and started working in film, did that change your approach to costuming and designing? Or did it just kind of translate really easily? I don't differentiate between what who, what I do as an artist. I when people ask who you are, what do you do, what's your job title? I always tell them I'm an artist. I'm a storyteller. Um, so whether it's you know designing a wig or beating a mug or art directing a photo shoot or production designing a film or directing a play or producing a show or creating performance art, the basic job for us is that we are there to tell a story. And my approach is that. Keep it simple. We're here to commune, to create community, to communicate. And the most simple basic fact is that we're here as artists to tell a story. Yeah. What becomes interesting, what, what creates magic, what creates intrigue is the why. Why are we in this room? Why are we creating what we're creating? Why? I always go back to the why of things when uh, I'm creating stuff. I think it keeps the work honest. I found that too, when I was in Los Angeles, it was very like, even on the acting side, it was, oh, well, this is great. I'm trained in comedy and drama. I can do both. And your agents would be like, no, what are you? We need you to get in a box and stay there. <laughs> are you comedy? And if you're comedy, are you dark, dark comedy? Are you like, TV ensemble show with a live audience comedy. What kind of comedy are you? And theater is not like that at all. It's very like, oh, great. You can do Shakespeare and some new contemporary slapstick show. Great. Get on stage. I've had to fight a, a hard battle to be taken seriously in, in what I do. Yeah. When I was sort of training and coming up and, and making a place for myself, there was no groundwork laid for me. I tell people this all the time. I have always felt like a vampire. I have never seen my reflection looking back at me when I view art, mm. when I see a theater piece, when I see television. People may take for granted that you can turn on a television show and see a reflection of who you are. Yeah. And I have never seen anyone that translates my story to me. So visibility became hugely important for me. And uh, I think it's less about what I do, but creating a branding so that you know what you're going to get when you're working with me. You know, you're going to get someone who's very passionate and driven and shows up and does the work and is not intimidated. 
but yeah, I've had to fight that battle of like, oh, that's the wig guy or that's the makeup guy. Yeah. That's the one who does everything. You know, I go, I always go into a situation and I always say, how am I going to, I don't, I don't ever think about how am I, how do I not know how to do this or question, do I know how to do this? I just show up and I do it and whatever I don't know how to do when I open the door, I make sure that I open it wide enough to bring everybody with me that's been working with me because what I don't know how to do, they know how to do. And suddenly there's a seat at the table for all of us. So yeah, it's definitely, a, it's definitely been a, a battle to keep creating and, and being recognized and having visibility and letting people know that you're here and you have a specific vision and a story to tell and making sure that you know people are listening, people are watching. Because there are people that will who have never seen themselves either. And hopefully through the work that I'm creating, see a reflection of themselves, you know? Keep creating. We're here. You matter. Yeah. Well, so I have heard, I didn't get to see it, but I've heard a lot of buzz about your production of Streetcar. And it was one of the things that when I like put on our Instagram stories, what do you want to know from Ryan? People really wanted to hear about your experience with Streetcar. So can you tell us like how you landed that job and what inspired you and what that journey with the show was like? It's Tennessee Williams is an author that I've always um, admired and I love his writing and I love the way he writes women and I think he's brilliant. And it was one of those pieces that I've always dreamed of directing. If I didn't get to play Blanche on stage, I wanted to direct her. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, you know, when I approach a work that is produced often, I always say, well, what can I bring to the table? What voice can I make room for that hasn't been heard before? What what is going to make uh, our telling of this tale interesting, uh, vital? I never want to create or recreate um, the work of another artist. I always want to bring, you know, a specific vision to the table. Mm-hmm. And so that's how I approach all my work, but it's specifically work that's been produced a lot uh, that people have seen. So when you come and see it, it's like, well, you know, you learn things from a different perspective. You hear things differently because they're being told from a voice that you haven't been listening to. Mm-hmm. And I knew that I wanted to do an African-American-led version of that tale, just specifically because of the neighborhood that the, that the tale is told from, that's written from. You know, how are we telling a story in New Orleans and not, and not talking about the Black community? Yeah. So that was just, that was easy. That was, I mean, I didn't even have to work for that one. That was, yeah. <laughs> why are we not telling the story from that perspective? Mm-hmm. So that's sort of where, um, where it started. And then I started thinking about colorism within our communities and how, you know, we pride light skin and not dark skin. And, you know, how does having quote unquote good hair in the community differ from those who have natural hair? I just thought that the dynamic, the words, the difference between these sisters just took on a, it said more than just, oh, we're two white women crying about our problems. It just said more. And, uh, intrigued me and and i think it also intrigued audiences yeah did that create kind of 
a different conversation. Like, I don't know if you got to have talkbacks, but with the audience or even in the rehearsal room. Oh, definitely. Yeah. The, the rehearsal process was definitely a, a, com- a conversation that I hope is still continuing about uh, race relations and our own preconceived biases of who we are and who you are and, and how we relate to one another. I think it's an important thing to, to discuss so that we can then hopefully heal from mm-hmm. and move forward and create more stories. Well, tell me when Giant Entertainment came into the picture. Well, Giant was born on Election Day 2016. No way. <laughs> I don't have to tell anyone what uh, what we're living through currently. Yeah. There was hopelessness in the room on that election night. And I was already working and creating art with a group of people who were sort of on a similar journey. And it became imperative that we make sure that we stay visible. You know, I have an indigenous background and I know what it means to have your history erased, to have your identity questioned, to be ignored. And I've always created work for the other and from the perspective of the other. Like I said earlier that I've never seen, you know, my reflection that when I create it, it has to be about, you know, when you check the boxes, (laughs) we're the others, you know. And uh, it became imperative that we make our voices heard and that we let people know that we're here and that we are going to continue to create and be vocal and be visible and fight the good fight. And that is sort of what, how Giant became Giant. And we, uh, we create, we have created uh, small intimate stories from interesting, unique perspectives. And we've created huge multicultural spectacle happenings. They're all told from the same place, though, of the truth of who we are and celebrating our unique individualities in the same room and listening and appreciating each other. So you would describe the kinds of events that Giant does as artistic happenings. It's not quite like a, a, a play in the way that we might think of it. And because, you know, we're multi-dimensional artists, we come from different backgrounds, we all bring something to the table, you know, we incorporate different ways of storytelling. Some of that might be through film, some of that might be through movement, some of that might be through puppetry. We sort of bring everything that we do and do well to the table and we combine it to create a tapestry. And that works incredibly well for small plays and it works incredibly well for huge spectacles. I think, you know, just making sure that that we're staying inclusive to the storytelling process, mm-hmm. sort of vital to the work that we create. I was, that's something that follows me throughout everything, not just my work at Giant. It's it's a viewpoint that I bring to the table wherever I'm at. No, I definitely remember Election Day 2016, and I was working at a theater, and yeah, we all clocked into work that day and just stared at each other and did this like collective sigh. So I love that you woke up that morning and you started moving your feet and like put action to. Yeah, let's get to work. Yeah. There's, there's, there's work to do. The work is never done. Let's get to it. So what is the last three months looked like for you with everything kind of slowing to a halt? 
creating actually. Yeah. Yeah. We, it, it hasn't stopped. It's certainly slowed down and it's put importance on, on, on other things, but the creative process hasn't slowed down. I started home renovations. <laughs> yes. I, uh, I started rewriting a script that I created in LA about 10 years ago. Oh yeah. Yeah. I broke that back out and I've, um, done some creative work with Lone Star Circus that I work with here in Dallas as well. Okay. We're working on creating a virtual circus experience. Okay. Very exciting uh, that uh, that we're bringing to everyone next month. That's super exciting. Yeah. So uh, things haven't stopped. Yeah. We just, keep, we just you know find a, a a new way of focusing that energy on something different. We're gotten together with some friends and we've done a lot of uh, fun video work. Um, during the shutdown mm-hmm. in our small groups, we've had basically like a germ pact. <laughs> yeah. Like, a, like these are the people that we are sharing germs with and that is it. That sense of community is sort of what has gotten us through um, the shutdown. Right. A germ pact. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, it's been so inspiring just how, watching how adaptive artists are. And we always knew that we are adaptive innovative individuals but just this all really put that to the test i mean artists have survived this long i mean we're going to continue yeah to create tell stories it's it's what we do we are here to tell the oral history of our people like you know when they study ancient civilizations they look at the arts so you know we, we are a reflection of humanity and we have you know we have work to do with you being a Dallas native and in light of this global Black Lives Matter movement that we're witnessing and taking part in, how are you hoping that DFW changes and gets better after this? You know, I've been on the front lines of this movement. And it's been great to be a part of it and to witness it so that I can I can speak on it with a, with a certain amount of truth. And having created and worked in the industry in DFW for, you know, close to 20 years, there's just so much to impact. But, you know, I feel like the great work is upon us. I feel and I believe that DFW can sort of lead the way in these talks and these discussions and these challenges. But I don't think it should stop at in the Black Lives Movement. I've worked at the Latinx theaters where I wasn't Latinx enough to be valued in the room. I've worked at the women's theaters that uh, wouldn't listen to you or view you because they didn't value your trans or queerness in the room. You know, I haven't worked at some queer theaters because you weren't the right kind of queer for their theater. Which is so funny because that just echoes what you were talking about with losing your vision when you couldn't get funding because you weren't blind enough. Right. Exactly. Gosh. There's so much work to do and it doesn't just stop at, you know, I don't think we, you don't land at a, Oh, we've made these changes or we've, uh, we've written this into our bylaws or we've made this statement that doesn't end the conversation. That doesn't end the work. Mm. You know, I think, I think we need to listen. Um, I think we need to be teachable. And I think we need to um, focus on the impact of our actions or our inactions, you know, and don't get bogged down on intention. I mean, intentions really don't matter. 
I think we need to hold ourselves accountable and leave room to fail. Do the work. There's just no, there's no shortcut, you know, to finding the resolution. It's something that we have to practice every day and be compassionate, you know? Yeah. Just be compassionate. I think actively working towards your healing, um, healing the people around you, being more self-aware, managing your uh, reactions, being active and undoing your own patterns and your own biases. You have to be an active part of helping humanity shift to something better. And I think that is exciting because I think Dallas can lead the way as far as the um, arts community goes. You know, we have room to make the risks to create the change. I think there's a lot of work to do here. And hopefully the work that we do will be felt in larger communities. Yeah. Yeah. That's good word. Good word. Um, do you have any advice for young or up and coming designers, costume designers, wig makers, directors, all of artists? I do. I say uh, find that thing that makes you uniquely different and polish it until it becomes your style. Your blend of magic is not another one's to make. You know what I mean? Yeah. There's no one like you. No one can do what you do. Well, you have to think about the things that make us odd and strange and unique. That's where our power lies. Don't believe the lies, the, the, the more murky stories that we tell ourselves that, you know, we're not good enough or no one gets us. You know, we're too much, we're too loud, we're too this, we're too that. Get to the truth of who you are. Work through that, that murkiness. Find your witchiness because that's where power lies. The very thing that makes us feel separate is actually what connects us all in humanity. You know, as the love of my life, Dolly Parton would <laughs> say, find out who you are and do it on purpose. <laughs> Gosh, that's good. Thank you, Ryan. I do have one more question for you. You have phenomenal, shiny, strong hair. <laughs> Can you please tell us some hair secrets and how you take care of your gorgeous, gorgeous locks. Just lucky, I guess. Yeah, it's genetic and unattainable. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, wash, condition, brush, you know, eat your vitamins, take a sweater, it might get cold. (laughs) That's perfect. I love it. Well, Ryan, that is all I have for you today. Thank you so, so much for talking with me. Thank you. This was really fun. Yeah, I learned a lot and I think everyone's going to love this episode. Well, I will let you go. Enjoy your Sunday. Have a good one and stay safe. You too. See you soon, hopefully. Yeah, I'll see you soon, hopefully. Bye. Bye. Okay, folks, if you want to keep up with Ryan, he is at R-Y-M-A-T-T-H-I-E-U on Instagram. And while you're at it, go check out giantentertainment.org to learn more about the work that they do. Also, I just wanted to let you know, we're going to be taking a short hiatus for the next month. So no new episodes in July, but we'll be back in action and ready to rock in August. In the meantime, if you would like to be on the podcast or you know someone who you think should be on a podcast, 
send us an email at artsdistrictpod at gmail.com. And keep an eye on our Instagram because we're going to be allowing local artists to do takeovers and spotlighting any safe social distance theater events that are happening this summer. So content is still coming. Okay, be safe and we'll be back in August. Bye.